listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. Since we last recorded, the world has fundamentally changed. COVID-19, born from the alleged consumption of a bat purchased in an illegal market in Wuhan, China, has spread across the globe and in a sense put humanity on hold. Millions have caught it, hundreds and thousands have died, and in its wake, a new reality of social distancing has emerged, where the best hope in combating the disease lies in people's capacity to no longer interact in person. Across the world, states have struggled to face the disease and save lives, enacting a myriad of policies and approaches to mitigate the human and economic damage of COVID-19. And as would be expected, the results have been a mixed bag ranging from the East Asian success stories to the abject failure of the Trump administration in the U.S. to adequately deal with the disease. In the first of a series of podcasts on COVID-19, this episode will focus on the Canadian response to coronavirus. At the time of this introduction, nearly 50,000 Canadians have contracted it, with deaths inching towards 3,000 nationwide. While hope lies in the fact that contraction rates have actually began to slow, Anxieties continue to rise as politicians and policymakers have begun to discuss the reopening of local economies after nearly two months in stasis. To talk about all this, I'm joined by Paul Thomas, a senior research associate with the Smart Center for Democracy and an adjunct professor here at Carleton's Department of Political Science. So obviously this is an unprecedented event in world history, let alone Canadian history, but have you ever seen this sort of wide-scale response from the Canadian government in terms of scope and the range of policy towards an issue in the past? I think the the only real parallels that you can see uh, where all elements of society become uh, enmeshed in a single policy response would be the wars previously, where you had, in many ways, the government taking over elements of the economy and also putting in strict limits on travel or that sort of freedoms, I guess, that people would have. In many ways, the the country isn't, or the government isn't uh, built for this kind of intervention. It's something that has to be ramped up very quickly. And so it's been impressive in some ways that the government has moved so quickly to try to identify what elements of its um, existing infrastructure can be redeployed for the purpose of providing some of these benefits. And so you, the, it, it's very ironic in a way that the tax system, the CRA website, which is normally used uh, for the purpose of, of taking money from Canadians basically, has been redesigned to distribute it. And the reason was just because it, it was the, the element of the government's infrastructure, IT infrastructure, that was designed for tens of thousands of transactions a day. Mm. And so it was the most robust to, uh, to continue. And so you, you see the same thing now, even with the military being redeployed to nursing homes. You see factories that are, are normally producing other things being put over to the production of personal protection equipment. And so this sort of whole scale um, repurposing of personnel, of infrastructure, of elements of the economy is just something that really, the wartime metaphor, although it, 
it's a very different context, but it's the closest we've seen um, from, and also uh, the level of government expenditures and the willingness to take on debt. And it seems like every week there's a new announcement, for, or every day really, there's a new announcement for funding or a new initiative. I mean, just this week alone, we finally, <laughs> you know, my bias here, finally uh, ended up hearing about student support. And there's discussion now about the next thing being support directed towards seniors. What do you think of these responses? Have have they been effective? Is there things that don't work? And particularly, I'm I'm thinking about communication here and about not just what the government is doing, but how the virus is evolving and affecting Canadian society. I think there has been a lot of trial and error, for lack of a better term, um, and a great focus on... I mean, the, the phrase that comes to mind is not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, uh, but not perhaps in this context, it's almost not letting the perfect be the enemy of the quick. So the the first instinct seems to be to get as, as much support to as many people as possible, and then to see if there are those who are falling through the cracks. Uh, you mentioned the most recent support for students uh, in many ways coming because they didn't qualify for the uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit since they didn't have the, the hours of work that were in place. And so now it's a separate program for those who have been just left out from the initial response. So you see this sort of progressive revision both to the existing policies that have been launched, say like the CERB, sort of expanding the criteria, expanding the time horizons, um, but then also the uh, additional development of new programs as they go. And the wage subsidy is another one. First, it was going to be a 10% wage subsidy, then that jumped to 75. Uh, and part of it has been that we didn't know, I guess, at the beginning exactly how long of a duration would be required and how rapid the shock would be to businesses. Uh, in part because we've just never, uh, it, was, it was interesting to hear some commentators point out, there has never been an economic recession caused by deliberate government action before. Um, usually recessions come because some element of the capitalist system gets unbalanced. And so you have debt that people didn't properly analyze leading to the 2008 crisis or what have you. But this has sort of been the first one where governments knew what they re knew to some extent the, the things would be bad, but just had never gone down this road before. Um, in terms of communications though, part of it has been incomplete or at incomplete at best or unfortunately uh, confusing at worst. Mm -hmm. So initially, the and this is, um, I don't want to get into sort of the ongoing discussions about whether we should have been listening to the World Health Organization or who knew what when um, from the perspective of China, uh, the Chinese government sharing information with the rest of the world. Uh, but at the end of January, the World Health Organization did declare that there was uh, the coronavirus constituted a public health emergency of international concern and recommended every country in the world begin preparing um, that it could spread to a pandemic. And so this was sort of the whether it should have come sooner or not is is a matter of debate. Um, but at least I think it was January 23rd, the alarm bell went off. And so what happened in the following 
period of time is in many ways on, on more domestic government. And we even had um, the House of Commons uh, being told in late February that uh, social distancing efforts might be required. And so it was surprising that there weren't as many plans put in place. Um, and even there was a disconnect between sort of the, the international policy response. So we had uh, relief flights uh, going to Wuhan to pick up Canadian citizens beginning the first week of February. Uh, there was the establishment of the quarantine centers at CFB Trenton. And so there, there was certainly a policy response beginning, but it didn't extend necessarily to the domestic realm uh, until all of a sudden it, it was like a switch was thrown and then <laughs> everything closed. And so there wasn't as much effort to perhaps prepare people for what might be possible. Even as we saw countries um, like South Korea um, and Japan closing their schools in February, Italy going into lockdown the first week of March. And so the, the development of the response could have been started a bit earlier. I mean, this is all for the benefit of hindsight. There had been this hope that maybe we could track and trace each case as it came in. And part of this is a lack of understanding of initially of how the coronavirus works, that there's so many asymptomatic people. But even then we saw the, the element where we had the, the, even the Premier of Ontario going from in literally in the same day of go on your March break vacation to then later that day saying, um, actually, we're going to close schools. And the uh, element uh, where travelers were told to be screened, but the advice wasn't actually being given at airports. We were told at first to avoid crowds, but restaurants were allowed to stay open, told to stock up on two weeks uh, worth of food, but then to avoid panic buying, told to exercise, but not to go outdoors. And so there was just a lot of moments where two pieces of information would be provided that seemed at points um, mutually contradictory. Um, same, I mean, the, and then also just outright reversals, say on the issue of face masks or that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess because the evolving nature of it all, like we're just learning about everything as we go and it's really hard to make it sort of policy platform, a cohesive one or even a coherent one when you just, yeah. when you just don't know, right? I think part of it could be... How can I put it? And, and this may also be an, a challenge in the media reporting as well. Um, but in some, I mean, the, perhaps the most telling one was that in early March, uh, the government said quite directly, oh, travel advisories or travel bans won't work to stop the virus. And so it wasn't a matter of, oh, we don't need this yet. It was a matter of this is an, an unuseful, an ineffective intervention. But then it was introduced. And so some of it can also just be perhaps a lesson in the language that uh, governments may in future wish to be more uh, cautious of saying, not, not first <laughs> arguing um, that something would, would not help in any way to saying, okay, we don't have evidence that it is effective yet, but we're reviewing options. Because I think that made elements more uh, but we'll, in the same with the face mask issue, we were told, oh, this won't help, this won't help, this won't help. Oh, maybe it will. Um, and so it, it can be just more even of a hedging of bets that may help the public to then understand why the reversals are coming. Yeah, those are definitely statements that didn't age well. No, <laughs> no. And, and, and as you said, it was, I guess, the initial evidence, but then it makes it much harder um, for the public to understand uh, to 
become if you if you're contradicting the own advice that was given earlier it just raises doubts in the public as mm -hmm. to the validity of the new advice and and also very much just fuels the conspiracy theory cottage industry that exists yeah which i'm hoping we'll get to a little later on because that's it's a big thing but one thing i want to move on to is something i know that you've been doing some work about in the face of all this and that's policy debate you know within the house this has become an ongoing concern and indeed it's really become a major debate in and of itself uh, with the liberals and opposition really jostling between the amounts of time the house sits live and move towards virtual parliament um, admittedly it's been heavily reduced and this has led to debates whether policy is being adequately debated um, much of the measures we've seen pass has really happened without mps having eyes on you know the sort of policy the government wants to put out do you think this is a problem uh, yes, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And it's one of those elements where um, you you can understand the challenge the first time and maybe the second, but then we really need to start improving. Um, so just for the, the context, the, the House of Commons was sitting as normal um, in the week of, I think it was the week of March 11th, which is when sort of everything began to enter into restrictions. So March 13th was, I believe, the day that Ontario announced um, schools and others would uh, be closing uh, following March break, where you had increasing border restrictions and that sort of thing being introduced by the United States. And that week, um, the House of Commons began sitting as normal, so MPs flew in from across the country. I was at an event on the Wednesday of that week with 100 youth who flew in from across Canada to meet with MPs. It's a program called the Forum for Young Canadians. Um, and so it was very jarring to go from literally being at a reception with all of these youth and MPs. Um, no one was shaking hands. They'd at least moved on to that point, but still in the same room to then going to the, the social isolation or social distancing that we saw subsequently. The decision at the end of the week was to rapidly pass a, a piece of emergency legislation that would give the government some spending authority. And this was when sort of in the middle of the week, it became clear that the social distancing would be needed that it would probably be best not to have parliament sitting for a while, uh, in part because parliament literally is perhaps the, the worst workplace um, from the point of view of COVID-19. You take people from across the country, fly them in to sit in close quarters in one room and surrounded by these winding hallways and close offices where you know, you're, you're brushing past security guards, you're all filing in and out of the same elevators. And so, yeah, quite literally, it, it was one of the, uh, they were described as super spreaders or potential super spreaders, where you would go and then diffuse um, infections across the country. Um, so anyway, in that context, it was decided to give the government sort of this emergency spending authority. But unfortunately, the agreement was reached behind closed doors. So you had uh, government and opposition MPs negotiating, uh, and then, they came to the House of Commons on fr the morning of Friday the 13th and passed a bill by something called unanimous consent. Um, and unanimous consent lets the parliament suspend its normal procedures. Normally, pieces of legislation have to go through uh, a series of delays, basically, that you can't to, to provide uh, members with opportunity to scrutinize and debate the government's proposals. 
bills go through at least one session per day. So you, you, you need to have a bit of time so that you can't rush it through all in one sitting unless you have this unanimous consent, uh, where as long as no one person objects, you can move a bill quickly. Uh, the difficulty in this case was that the unanimous consent to pass this bill, uh, which allowed for the emergency spending, was actually uh, agreed uh, before the, the text of it was tabled. So MPs literally pass something without seeing it, um, or at least without all of them seeing it. And that's, that's a worrying precedent to have from the point of view of transparency. Um, so then Parliament adjourned. Uh, they re quickly realized more economic support would be uh, needed. And they came back uh, for two additional emergency sessions. Each was just one day. Um, although I guess one kind of went through the night, so it sort of became two days. Um, and that same practice was followed, where the details of the legislation were hashed out uh, behind closed doors uh, between the government and the opposition MPs. Uh, it was then, at least for the those emergency sessions, they at least introduced the bill first before passing it through all of its stages. So you you know people would have at least had a few minutes to read the text but the same element where literally it was public for perhaps hours uh, before uh, the largest economic stimulus ever in Canadian history was passed. And so that is something that uh, is not an ideal situation. And the other element for the emergency sessions was that uh, the decision was made uh, given the concerns about parliament as a potential breeding ground for COVID-19. Uh, the decisions were made to limit the number of MPs present to just about three dozen. And that meant the diversity of the representation was greatly reduced. So at the two emergency sessions, there was no one present uh, from any province to the east of New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, all were unrepresented. And you also had the same element, uh, the north was not represented. and Generally speaking, um, you had between 70 and 80% of the MPs present from Ontario or Quebec. So again, given that the dynamics of the pandemic are playing out differently in different parts of the country, uh, that those regional voices were somewhat, were, well, clearly not even somewhat, were absent in some cases or muted in others, um, which is not ideal. We also found um, through some of the research I did for the Samara Center, for democracy that some of the gender dynamics um, were reduced. So you had, say in the Senate, under normal circumstances, the Senate is 40% women. Uh, that dropped down to just 20% of the people who attended the emergency sessions. And so representation was compromised. Uh, the one good thing, at least though, out of the emergency sessions was that you had authorization given for two of the parliament's committees, two of the House of Commons committees, I should say, uh, to meet virtually. And that was so they, it was the House of Commons Finance and House of Commons Health Committees. And that was so that they could begin this process of scrutinizing and debating the government's response. In contrast, however, uh, the British Parliament, when it adjourned similarly to try to prevent the spread, it allowed all of its committees to meet virtually. And so you've had a bit more of a robust scrutiny going on. Both the British and the Canadian parliaments actually came back this week. But the British Parliament has decided to continue full operations uh, with what they're calling a hybrid model. Mm -hmm. So you had 
you have this situation where uh, they have up to 50 MPs physically present in the debating chamber, and then they have up to 120 uh, MPs taking part virtually. And the 120 cap is just because they don't have the bandwidth to support more. And it is a smaller proportion. So the, the British House of Commons has 650 MPs. So, you know, at, at best, it's still under a third who can take part. But that's still a lot better than just having only the 50 who can be physically present. And so the, the hope is that you can rotate through the others to try to improve representation. Um, and the other element is that because they've adopted this hybrid model, if the government needs to bring forward emergency legislation, you can have it introduced one day and then at least debated the next. So there's a bit more time for public reaction. Um, in the Canadian context, we decided not to go down um, the model of having um, full parliamentary activity. Instead, they, we, we've gone into a bit of um, a stopgap measure where we're going to have parliament meeting three days a week two of those sessions will be done virtually one of them will be in person but it's not actually going to be considered it's a it's a sitting of parliament but not necessarily a parliamentary sitting um it's going to be technically a committee so they won't be able to debate legislation uh they will be able just to question ministers and so any emergency legislation that needs to be brought forward may still have the same issues of transparency um, that we saw before. It's funny because this, in, in just what you were saying there, I, I can't help but think about how we see even here the manifestation of some of the classic issues in Canadian politics, you know, the competing logics of representation versus effectiveness, with effectiveness essentially always winning, Yep. Um, regionalism, right? And this idea that like central Canada, Ontario and Quebec are where the focus is always at. And we see this in terms of the regional walkouts, um, even like the gender dimension that you mentioned, you know, that this is like a man's game. I don't know if it's irony or just, you know, the terrible reality that like these classic issues are, are manifest so well here. No, and in some ways, the response, the way Parliament has responded to the pandemic is in like many elements of society actually, is just to exaggerate or, or amplify problems that already existed. Mm. So the way COVID-19 has played out, unfortunately across the world has been to increase uh, economic inequality. It's, it plays on existing um, racial, gender, other inequalities. And in the House of Commons, the same fault lines where for, as you say, for years, we've had this tension between um, representation in meaningful debate often being put aside in favor of effectiveness and decisive action. And that has just been, you know, to, as, as they would say in Spinal Tap, turned up to 11, um, where in the same with the, the other elements around regionalism, around gender. I mean, the one good element, if that's possible, is that at least in the House of Commons, the, the gender balance has improved somewhat. So we're now, I mean, it, it's still not not great, um, but at least it's it's on par. So the last session they had, it was 30% women, which is what the House of Commons is um, overall. However, if you looked a little deeper, um, there was some tension there where the Conservative Party, uh, there was only one woman present for the Conservative Party, 
and the majority of the women who were there were actually with the uh, the Liberal Party, and that reflected partly that the Liberal uh, most of the Liberal members who were present were ministers, um, and so this has been another element where if you're only going to have 30 odd MPs present um, and you want the opposition to be questioning government ministers, then most of the Liberal members who are present are going to be ministers. So the group um, actually who have the worst representation in these emergency sittings are Liberal backbenchers, the Liberal MPs outside of cabinet. Mm. But on the flip side, because the cabinet is gender balanced, if you have a lot of ministers there, you're going to have at least better gender balance. So the Liberals have, have played out better in terms of gender balance amongst their members but they've been one of the worst in terms of representation across the provinces um, so the liberals have only had uh, mps there from ontario quebec and uh, perhaps one or two other provinces whereas the conservatives have fared far better having members there usually from at least six or seven provinces so again you see these these odd dynamics playing out in part because of the way that if, if you're only having a limited number, what sacrifices get made in terms of the, the representation just exaggerates those existing trends. I mean, the one thing I would just say is that there's been a recognition by our political leaders that, that democracy is important. I think right now what we need to work on is is exactly how we can um, get back as much as the usual elements as possible while still respecting the restrictions. And that's where there's a few differences of opinion between the parties. What I am encouraged by is that we haven't seen the reaction of some countries like, say, Hungary, where, you know, they've just empowered the government to rule by decree. Um, and so considering all the things that have happened, we've, we've uh, maintained respect for our institutions and respect for process. And so that's that's a good foundation to build on. Hopefully we can just make it stronger. It's interesting because in terms of those classic sort of Canadian political issues, the one area, at least in terms of the optics of it, where I've seen, you know, kind of positive things happening is in the federal divide, you know, between the provinces and the federal government. You know, I can't help but think of Premier Ford and Christian Freeland and the, you know, the sort of positive things they've been saying about one another and the collaboration that's going on there, not just in terms of like the federal-provincial divide, but even the partisan divide. Um, and it just got me thinking, you know, are, are we seeing kind of an, an improvement there? Uh, what do you think about the coordination that's been happening between the provinces and the federal government? Have, have they been moving smoothly across the country when it comes to collaboration, or do we still see the political praxis of federalism? I would say we. it's been much better uh, than the level of collaboration uh, and cohesion in normal times. That's not to say it's been perfect. And I think we will see more challenges um, coming forward as different parts of the country begin to reach the point of loosening restrictions. Uh, so already, we're seeing Saskatchewan and soon to be New Brunswick pushing forward with its with uh, plans to begin reopening businesses, uh, relaxing some of the restrictions in place. And the federal government has been encouraging them to wait until sort of a national policy is put in place 
so that you don't have perhaps the the loosening in one part of the country undermining efforts for restrictions in another part or vice versa. And this is going to be challenging to maintain given that Canadians generally do have freedom of mobility. So if, if people see one province opening up, um, there is going to be a need to avoid having people from other places that are still under lockdown rushing there and perhaps undermining it. We've also seen uh, a lot of collaboration amongst, say, support for different industries, um, but at the same time, some some tensions emerging around treatment. Alberta arguing that Health Canada was moving too slowly in approving new tests. There's also been some concern about whether personal protective equipment was being distributed to the areas of greatest need. And there are also are elements where uh, the economies in different parts of the country are being affected in different ways. And the fiscal capacity of each province to deal with the, the burdens being put in place. So British Columbia um, has, has generally fared pretty well, where you had a province with relatively low debt that was able to respond fairly quickly to the pandemic with a fairly diversified economy. And whereas then you have Alberta and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, where they're more oil dependent. And so they, the decline in the price of oil has substantially undermined Alberta's budget predictions, but actually had the worst impact, in, at least in the short term, on Newfoundland and Labrador, where the government actually uh, in that province has uh, been quite close to I get, I'm not sure what the provincial equivalent of bankruptcy would be, but insolvency, where they tried to issue debt in order to continue funding their operations and could not find any buyers on the international market. And part of this is just because every government in the world is trying to issue debt. And so um, countries with a, with a higher credit rating or jurisdictions with a higher credit rating are, are faring better. And so in the short term, you've seen uh, the Bank of Canada step in as a bit of a lender of last resort, buying up these bonds. But all of this is challenging where the federal government is has the greater fi financial capacity. And also the federal government is often left to pick up the pieces from decisions that may not have gone well. So if there's a, a province who doesn't adopt uh, effective policies to restrict the pandemic, and then their businesses need to stay closed for longer, well, the burden of supporting those workers who are out um, falls on the federal system. And so you wind up potentially with, it'll be interesting to see how it goes down because some provinces that have come out of this uh, more successfully may be frustrated that they in effect wind up subsidizing those that did not. Um, and so concerns about, e I can see concerns about equalization, about tax burden, all of that um, coming out um, as we begin to move towards the reconstruction phase. It's interesting that you mentioned oil because that's one thing which really kind of gets tucked away in the face of COVID that like we have seen this massive drop in the price of oil that really stems not necessarily from COVID, but from the power moves being made between Saudi Arabia and Russia in terms of who's going to be the biggest oil oligarch in the world. And this obviously has had a really negative impact, as you've outlined, uh, for Alberta and Newfoundland particularly. And it's really resulted in the federal government stepping in. They've talked about this emergency stimulus package towards the oil sector, $15 billion. Obviously, these sorts of investments illustrate the government's perspective on the need to protect oil, despite the fact that at the same time, you know, the liberals have also ran on 
you know, the doctrine of being an environmentally progressive party. What are your views on this move? That's a very good question. I think the, and I, I have, I should caveat anything I say by disclosing that I have not <laughs> investigated the, the oil uh, stimulus uh, in great detail. From what I understand, a lot of it is actually trying to square that circle uh, that you laid out about this, the tension between supporting the oil industry and simultaneously uh, maintaining environmental credentials. And that has been, the, the effort has been to focus the support on remediation projects. So particularly cleaning, cleaning up what are known as these orphan wells. And they emerge when you have an oil producer um, that has exhausted the uh, extraction potential for a particular uh, oil site, and then oftentimes abandons it or goes out of business. Um, and so the burden for cleaning these up then often falls to the public sector. Um, there's supposed to be a fund uh, that all of the oil producers pay in to support this process, but it is greatly underfunded. Uh, and what's particularly challenging with these wells from a climate change perspective is that they often uh, leak methane uh, which is three times as potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And so it's this perfect uh, storm of having a, a certain, uh, um, the tragedy in the commons, I guess, where the, the benefit for fixing them is great, uh, but no one really has ownership. And so uh, the effort now is to fund workers who are um, laid off, what have you, to go and fix up and cap these wells. Um, so it's putting oil workers back to work. It is um, helping an industry cope with a cost, but at the same time, it is in effect subsidizing businesses for something that they should have done anyway. Um, and it also isn't enough for what the businesses see as the, the cost that they are facing. So it's been criticized um, as uh, from one environmental perspective as subsidizing businesses for, you know, cleaning up their dirty laundry after they're finished and by businesses for not necessarily giving enough to support day to day operations. And lastly, this is something we talked about in sort of the last time we chatted in terms of like how we've lived through different critical junctures, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11. You know, you pointed out accurately the 2008 recession and the shock that happened then. And this really marks another one of those critical junctures where, you know, the political, social and economic fabric of the world around us has fundamentally changed. And we can see just in the past month, the political response there's been a major shift, right? Suddenly things like guaranteed income supplements and all of these huge public supports are not just on the table, but are kind of viewed as the necessary road to take to meet a wide-scale challenge such as COVID. What do you think the political world will look like after COVID-19? In particular, where is this pushing Canadian politics? I mean, the, the easy, quick answer is that uh, we have now seen a much greater realization uh, that a strong state can be beneficial. Uh, and that when, if you're not uh, developing uh, as an infrastructure to intervene for uh, health emergencies for others, uh, it's really hard to create one when you need it. Um, that there is a certain element of emergency preparedness that needs to be maintained. But more than that, that when these crises happen, 
there's no substitute, there's no business or what have you that can try to take on all of the costs of our society, um, that it, it's really only possible to turn to government. Uh, one commentator, I think it may have been Andrew Coyne or, or another, um, put it that effectively the government has nationalized our workforce, um, either by subsidizing the wages of workers who are still employed or by paying uh, EI or CERB or other benefits to those who are not working. And that is an astonishing development to have happen so quickly. And what's remarkable is the, the critics of the government are often less focused on them spending too much and driving up deficits, but on them not spending enough mm. to support business. And so that has, um, I mean, one of the, the elements in political discourse uh, is often talked about shifting of goalposts. And by that, they mean changing people's perspective on what is considered acceptable or not. And we've gone through, really since the 1980s, uh, an extended period where the goalpost shifted towards a smaller state, that uh, we had too much red tape, we all know that phrase, that taxes were too high, that individuals were better at deciding where their money should go, and that it would be best if the government was a smaller proportion of society. What we've now I think it's it's fairly clear, at least in the short term, jumped away from that, where people are now uh, much more willing to accept a larger government. And the difficulty, however, is that we're where this is going to be uh, a challenge going forward is that we now have people much more willing to accept a larger government. But at present, that's largely because it's a government that's paying them. And as with all good things, there, there's going to be a bill that comes due. And so it will be more challenging to see whether people are willing to accept the higher taxes that will be required when this is all said and done to, re, to both pay back the, the short-term um, costs that we've now just incurred and also to make sure that we maintain a greater state capacity, a greater government capacity uh, going forward. And so I, I do think this is, it's going to be a very challenging time for parties on the political right, um, because the message of, of attention to deficits, of um, reducing government intervention in the economy is, is now <laughs> for just not, um, uh, the best before date on those ideas I think has passed, at least in the short term. <laughs> Um, and it's just going to be coming across as a bit tone deaf in the current time. That's not to say though, that there isn't a role for the opposition and that I, I do think there is um, a lot of space now for uh, discussions of what the recovery will look like. And when will we get to the point where, because this, this level of spending just cannot continue forever. Um, some places can't sustain it. I mean, Italy is, uh, for example, is already talking about its debt being unsustainable. And it was generally before this began. Canada is in a much better fiscal space um, than other countries were. Uh, but still, the, the politics going forward and eventually having... Um, a conversation about what citizens will need to pay for the services they provide is going to be quite challenging. And so I, I do think it will be a critical juncture, but in some ways, the there's still a lot of history to write where 
whether people are just willing to to revalue um, that relationship with their government, where they're willing to accept not only getting greater services, but a greater cost to pay for them, or if that reluctance to have taxes, that, that, uh, that expression that tax is a four-letter word, is that going to continue? And the last thing, you've obviously been at home with your kids and your wife, but you've also <laughs> you know, been quite productive, a good academic, unlike some of us in this conversation, still putting out work. What sort of stuff have you been working on, um, not just in terms of your own research, but the stuff you've been doing with Samara Canada? So it's been um, busy, for lack of a better term. Um, so uh, with the Samara Center for Democracy, we've been trying to, uh, like so many good organizations out there, uh, pivot away from our normal research, which is focused on sort of longer term trends in parliamentary democracy, to focus on the short term, to see how, not quite in real time, but something, something pretty close, um, to evaluate how our political institutions have been responding and the sense of what adaptations they're making to the procedures to both cope with the emergency spending needed, but also with the social distancing and other restrictions imposed by COVID. And then to try to put that in context for how things are going in other countries to see whether um, the, I mean, there, there is a definite trade-off that's needed where this can't be business as usual it would be great if all MPs could go and have spent two months debating the government stimulus package, but that was just not something that could happen, both because of the travel restrictions, but also just the need to get money into wallets around the country. But have we have the compromises we've been making gone too far in one direction or another? Are there international models that are promising? And on that front, Canada's done some things better than others um, in but in other cases, I think there's some lessons we could learn or some ideas we could import uh, from other jurisdictions that have been able to maintain some elements of their their democratic process to a greater extent than what we've had here. Um, and so I mentioned just, for example, that the UK is trying uh, to keep more elements of its traditional parliamentary practice underway uh, through these hybrid sittings. Uh, New Zealand has created uh, a very effective committee. So it, it was sort of a, a, a bargain in a way that if the government was going to get all of these extra powers to respond to the crisis, that the opposition should be given a prominent role in leading scrutiny. So they've created a special pandemic response committee chaired by the leader of the opposition that holds meetings three times a week, um, hearing from experts, hearing from ministers to try to uh, review the government's response. And it's been very effective at ensuring uh, transparency around some of the alternatives the government is considering. So here we're often just seeing the decisions the government has made and not necessarily getting as much insight into what options were were pondered but not implemented, why certain choices were made. Um, and so it's, it's helpful to ensure that democratic accountability. Um, and the other element we've been looking at um, that would be sort of the medium term is looking at what it means for how do MPs represent constituents in an environment where their usual tools like town hall meetings or, you know, working the barbecue circuit um, in the summer. How do how can you still maintain that connection with citizens, especially at a time when citizens demands on MPs have skyrocketed with a number of people who have concerns about, you know, the loan that they need for their business or the application they've made. Uh, to CRB have grown. 
Um, and so looking at the potential for digital technologies to not just disseminate information, but to have a more of an interactive dialogue um, is something we're, we're working on um, in the near term. Um, but that has been that sort of the um, almost the holding pattern phase of what, it, what we're in. There's, there's sort of been the initial crisis of, uh, of getting the stimulus in place. And that will be more of the things get slightly back to normal, um, but we're still experiencing the physical distancing and what have you. Yeah, it's all very necessary stuff. So glad you guys are tackling it. It's been uh, nice to still be relevant <laughs> in some ways, perhaps more than we would have liked. Always an ideal thing for an academic, though. Yeah. Oh, gosh. No, it's been um, we I mean, we held a webinar uh, yesterday on the idea of virtual parliaments. And typically we assume, you know, maybe there's there's a smaller number of people who are interested. We expected maybe 50 or so to want to attend. And instead, uh, we're blown away when uh, well over 150 people tried to subscribe um, and unfortunately we didn't have the capacity. So it's it's been interesting to see how um, across the country there is, and even actually beyond, because um, we did have someone tune in from the from the Bahamas even trying to deal with these issues of how do you keep democracy going in a time of social distancing. So it's, if anything, actually the relevance has crept up um, more and more. And you're selling out the room. That's big. Well, you know what? It's it's one of those things where uh, we, we realize it's also a lot lower commitment. When you don't even need to leave your, your office. Uh, it's a lot easier to make it. Whereas if you're holding things in person, you know, it's it's a slightly different thing. So it, it was a lesson learned for us that um, in some ways you can reach a, a wider, um, a much wider audience um, through online. So we're, uh, yeah. Uh, and also in, we've been able to make some connections with similar organizations um, working in different parts of the world. And that's been a neat element of this as people start looking for answers. You also, much like you see some of these um, efforts to show solidarity across the country, you're seeing, you know, people working out to reaching out to find uh, common solutions as well. Well, I want to thank you again for helping out with this episode. I mean, we're going to be doing a few different COVID episodes from different perspectives, but this is kind of the first one I wanted to get out of the gate. And this was a great, great conversation. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you so much for reaching out. It was uh, it was great to be able to uh, to talk about how things have been going. And thank you for your, uh, your patience in finding the time. Oh, no worries. Thank you for making the time. You take care. I will talk soon. Okay, sounds good. Right. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci.